Welcome to the End of Innocence, the JFK Assassination. I'm your host, John Young. In last week's episode, we reviewed some of the witness statements from Dealey Plaza, including the testimony of Lee Bowers and Ed Hoffman. They were the only two men who had a clear view of the picket fence area on top of the grassy knoll before the assassination. Their testimony of what they saw is a game changer. If you missed it, go back and listen to last week's episode. Of all the episodes we've done, that is one you certainly don't want to miss. While Lee Bowers saw two men behind the picket fence just before the shooting, and Ed Hoffman saw one of those men fire a rifle. Surely there are others who saw something strange or out of the ordinary occur there on that spot behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. Well, actually, yes, there were. And we're going to talk about what these men seen this week. You know, at some point you have to ask yourself, did the Warren Commission get it right and all these witnesses that we've talked about and many others that we will talk about just made up their stories? For what reason, I don't know. Nobody got rich off their story of what they saw. It was a different time back then. Tabloids really weren't around, and newspapers were not shelling out hundreds of thousands of dollars for their stories. Yeah, some may have got a free month subscription to the Dallas Morning News, but that was about it. So why would all these witnesses lie and say they saw something that they didn't? It makes no sense. So did the Warren Commission get it right, and we just been spending time talking about a bunch of liars? Or were we lied to about the events that happened on November 22, 1963? Today, we're going to talk about even more witnesses that the Warren Commission chose to ignore because their story didn't fit the official story. What you're going to hear today is testimony from others whose stories corroborate exactly what Ed Hoffman, Lee Bowers, and others claim they saw behind the picket fence area on the grassy knoll during the assassination of JFK. Like I told you back in the beginning of this podcast, the JFK assassination is like a puzzle. The answers are right there in black and white to many of our questions. Not many people have tried to put the puzzle together. But as you listen to all these witnesses, does it seem strange to you that their stories match up and line up? That the puzzle pieces actually do fit? Things are actually going to make even more sense after today's episode. So away we go. At the time of the shooting, several railroad workers had a good vantage point to see the Texas School Book Depository and the grassy knoll. Sam Holland, Richard Dodd, and James Simmons were standing on the railroad bridge that goes over the triple underpass at the time of the shooting. Their interviews from Mark Lane's rush to judgment raised questions about the Warren Commission's conclusions. But on the other hand, they match up with exactly what Lee Bowers and Ed Hoffman claimed they saw during the shooting. Sam Skinny Holland was a railroad track supervisor for the Union Terminal Railroad. Here's what he told Mark Lane back in 1966 in an interview. Mr. Holland, on November 22nd, where were you? On November the 22nd, I was standing on top of the triple underpass, waiting for the parade in the president's car. I arrived about uh, 11.45 or close to noon. Uh, two policemen was talking to me and asked me, one of them asked me if I would come back up there and identify the people that had any business or had a right to be up there. They would be the railroad employees? They'd be railroad employees, and I told him I would. What, what was your position with the railroad company? Uh, track and signal supervisor for the Union Terminal Railroad. I put in 41 years of railroad service in the signal department. Did you look in any particular direction when you heard the shots? Yes, I looked over to where I thought the shot came from, and I saw a puff of smoke still lingering underneath the trees in front of the wooden fence. The report sounded like it came from behind the wooden fence, and a policeman throwed his motorcycle down in the middle of the street and run up the embankment, his pistol drawn. He was running toward that particular spot. 
And also another old, uh, motorcycle policeman right behind him tried to ride up the embankment on his motorcycle, and it turned over about halfway up the embankment. And he got out, he got off his motorcycle, and left it laying there and run on over to the fence with his gun in his hand. Where do you think the shots came from? Well, I know where that third shot came from. Where did that shot come from? Behind the picket fence. Is there any... Close to the little plaza. Is there any doubt in your mind that that shot came from behind the There's no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt whatsoever in my mind in the statement that I made in the sheriff's office immediately after the shooting and the statement that I made to the Warren Commission. And I made it very plain there was no doubt in my mind what there was definitely a shot fired behind that picket fence. I made it plain to the Warren Commission, and I think I made the same statement in the sheriff's office. There was a fourth shot. On November 22nd, Mr. Holland, did you tell the sheriff's office in an affidavit you signed that day that you saw a puff of smoke come from behind the picket fence? I am certain I did. Was, was it the general feeling, would you say, Mr. Holland, among the police officers and others, at the moment that the shots were fired, that some, at least one shot came from behind that wooden fence? There's about six or eight of us boys on the Union Terminal run around there to find some evidence that there was someone around there. Certainly the ones that was with me that run around that fence realized what was happening. They told me the same thing that I told you, that there was definitely a shot fired, and they saw the smoke. We just all started running around that fence as a unit. At this point in the documentary, Lane and Holland walk from the railroad bridge over to behind the fence at top of the grassy knoll. Is this the exact spot you were standing on on November 22nd, Mr. Holland? That's correct. This is the exact spot that I was standing on November the 22nd, waiting for the parade. And where did you hear that third shot come from? Right over about 20 or 30 feet from the other end of that little picket fence. And where was the smoke that you saw? It gripped you right out underneath those green trees, those two trees. From behind the fence? From behind the fence. It kind of hung there just like a, for a few seconds, long enough that you could see it. And then what you smoke? And then what you do? Immediately after the president's car came underneath this overpass, a four of us broke a run around this fence find out if we can see anybody leaving the air. Can we walk this way now? Do you want on the 22nd? No, we can walk that way right now. Fine. We were trying to see what we could see, and this was the direction you walked on the 22nd. This was the direction. I made this right turn, jumped this steam line, this pipe, one man right behind me jumped, and another one jumped right on top of him. Fell on top of him? Fell on top of him. And were there more cars here on the 22nd than there are today? They were bumper to bumper. It's just a sea of cars. You couldn't hardly get through them. We were jumping over the bumpers, over the hood of the cars, to work our way to the spot that we saw the smoke and heard the shot. And we came up to the wooden fence. Mr. Holland, did you remain behind here for a while when the police officers were searching the area? Approximately 15 minutes before I had to go back to my office. There were about 40 or 50 uh, people around here searching. And what did you find here? 
a lot of footprint behind this car, mud on the bumpers. And I looked around to see if I could find some empty shells or any evidence of a shot being fired and the bullet shell rejected from the gun. And this is where I saw the smoke from the third shot. The Warren Commission published just a very small portion of your testimony and used your testimony as proof that no shots could have come from behind the fence. Did they accurately and fairly use your testimony? They are wrong because my testimony, and I made it very clear, that there was a fourth shot fired and one of those shots came from behind that picket fence. Another witness on the triple overpass was Richard Dodd. Here's what he had to say to Mark Lane in his interview. Where were you on November 22nd, Mr. Dodd? I was standing on the underpass, Commerce Underpass in Dallas, Texas. Were you there alone? No, I was along with three friends of mine. Railroad men? Yeah, all railroad men. Mr. Holland was one of them? That's right. And did you see anything which might indicate to you where the shots came from? Well, uh, we all three seen four seen about the same thing as the shot. The smoke came from behind the hedge on the north side of the plaza, and a motorcycle policeman dropped his motorcycle in the street with his gun in his hand and run up the embankment to the hedge. And then I went north to look around the corner to see if there's anyone behind the hedge and met the special agent at Katy Railroad, and he went down there, and I walked along with him to see if there were any tracks there in which there were tracks and cigarettes butts but laying where someone had been standing on a bumper, looking over the fence or something. Were you questioned by agents of any government agency on November 22nd, Mr. Dodd? Yes, we were. We were taken over to the courthouse and questioned by, I suppose, secret service men of some kind. And uh, they asked me quite a few questions, about the same as I've told you men here today. But you were never called as a witness by the Warren? No, I never was called. Because here's the Warren report... And in the index, your name is not listed, and there's no reference in the whole 888 pages to the fact that you were up there, and you saw what you saw, you heard what you heard. Well, uh, I don't know about that, but uh, there was something that uh, looks to me like that uh, going on there that somebody should found out something. A man woke up and shoot a, a man handcuffed to a couple of policemen and get away with it. I, I figured there's something else that's going on besides what it should be. James Simmons was also a railroad employee who viewed the motorcade from atop the triple underpass directly over Elm Street. He had one of the best views of JFK's assassination, and yet he was never called to testify before the Warren Commission. This is his 1966 interview with Mark Lane. We are in Mesquite, Texas, in the home of James Leon Simmons, a car inspector for the Union Terminal Railroad. Mr. Simmons, how long have you been employed by the Union Terminal? I've been employed by the Union Terminal 11 years. Were you a witness to the assassination of President Kennedy? Yes, I was standing on the Elm Street overpass at the time of the assassination. Were you there alone or with others? Uh, There was a group of employees from the Union Terminal at the time and uh, two Dallas policemen. What did you see and what did you hear? As the presidential limousine was rounding the curve on Elm Street, there was a loud explosion. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like a loud firecracker or a gunshot, and it sounded like it came from the left and in front of us, towards the wooden fence, and there was a puff of smoke that came underneath the trees on the embankment. 
Where was the puff of smoke, Mr. Simmons, in relation to the wooden fence? It was right directly in front of the wooden fence. After you heard the shot and saw the smoke, what did you do? I was talking with a patrolman Foster at the time, and as soon as we heard the shots, we ran around to the wooden fence. And when we got there, there was no one there, but there was footprints in the mud around the fence, and there was footprints on the wooden two-before railing on the fence. Were you questioned by the Dallas police on that day? Yes, I was. Did you give your name to the Dallas police? Yes, I did. Did you tell them what you just told me? Yes, I did. Were you subsequently questioned by agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation? About a month later, I was questioned by the FBI. Did you tell them what you told me and what you told the Dallas police? Uh, yes, I did. Were you ever called as a witness by the Warren Commission? No, sir, I wasn't. This is the Warren Commission report. The back of it has an index of every person who was referred to by the commission. Is your name present there? No, sir, it is. I think it's rather curious that you had such a fine view of the whole Dealey Plaza area and you were among those who saw smoke coming from evidently behind the fence and yet you were not called by the commission as a witness. Well, I always thought it peculiar. I thought that's the way they did business. <laughs> it is absolutely amazing that the Warren Commission didn't talk to Richard Dodd or James Simmons, but that's because their story didn't fit the so-called official story. Sam Holland, though, did testify before the Warren Commission, and he told them the same thing that he told Mark Lane in the 1966 interview. Though the commission was skeptical of his testimony, Holland refused to change what he said over all these years. Ultimately, the Warren report found that Sam Holland's testimony was not credible, because when he ran off the overpass to see if there was anyone behind the picket fence, he did not see anyone among the parked cars. In other words, the Warren Report argument to discredit eyewitness testimony of shots fired from the grassy knoll is that since the witnesses didn't catch the shooter, there must have not been a shot fired from the grassy knoll. All of these witnesses, Sam Holland, Richard Dodd, James Simmons, and including Ed Hoffman, are viewed as liars by Warren Report defenders. But when you combine what Ed Hoffman and Lee Bowers said with what Gordon Arnold, Officer Smith, and Malcolm Summers said, it paints a picture of a grassy no assassin who was posing as a Secret Service agent immediately before and after firing the shots. Of course, Warren Report defenders would argue that Hoffman and Arnold and Bowers are liars, and Smith and Summers were probably just mistaken about what they saw in good faith because it was a chaotic situation after the shots were fired. Those railroad employees standing on the overpass all say they saw smoke come from behind the picket fence atop of the grassy no and linger underneath the trees. They all have the same story. These witnesses are either mistaken or lying, or they are prime witnesses to a conspiracy to assassinate the president. I was in Dealey Plaza in November of 2005, and I saw Bill Newman talking to a TV correspondent. On November 22, 1963, Newman and his wife Gail and their two young children were among the people closest to the president when the fatal shot rang out. I recalled my own conversation with Newman seven years earlier. We spoke in the lobby of the hotel where we were both attending a JFK research conference. A plumber by trade, he struck me as a down-to-earth man who accepted the accident that delivered him into one of the most decisive moments in American history, and he lived with its responsibility. Here's Bill Newman's interview with WFAA-TV in Dallas, only a few short minutes after the assassination. May I have your name, please, sir? Bill Newman. Billy, tell me what you saw and what you felt. What happened to you? We were... We had just come from well field after seeing the president and the first lady, and we were just in front of the triple underpass on Elm Street, and we were at the edge of the curve, getting ready to wave at the president. 
You were down, uh, you were down under the viaduct, so to speak. Actually, uh, we were halfway in between uh, on the grass. Under, under pass, we were at the curb when the incident happened. But the president's car was some 50 feet still yet. Uh, and front of us coming towards us, and we heard the first shot, and the president, I don't know who was hit first, but the president jumped up in his seat. And then as the car got directly in front of us, well, a gunshot apparently from behind us hit the president inside of the temple. Did, did you, do you think the first gunshot came uh, from behind you, too? I, I think it came from the same location. Uh, apparently back up on the, the uh, uh, mall, I don't know. What you call it? You should think the shot came from up on top of the viaduct toward the president. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And not, no, not on the viaduct itself, but up on top of the hill, a little mound of ground or the garden. The little mound of ground or garden, as Newman puts it, is known today as the grassy knoll. Bill and Gail Newman are pretty well known in the research community. They have appeared in numerous books, documentaries, and television shows about the assassination. But a witness that was directly behind them when the shots were fired is not so well known. Even in the research community, and in documentaries and programs about the assassination, this lady's name hardly ever comes up. Cheryl McKinnon was a 19-year-old college journalism student standing on the grassy knoll directly behind the Newmans back on November 22, 1963. She had plans to write about the president's motorcade for a journalism class project. When the murder of the president took place right in front of her, she dropped to the grass on the knoll, where NBC photographer Dave Whiteman caught her in some of his few clear frames. Here's her important story. Quote, On November 22, 1963, I stood along with hundreds of others on the grassy knoll in Dealey Plaza, waiting for just one thing, a chance to see, even just for a moment, that magical person, the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. I had prepared for days to be in the plaza. As a journalism major in school, my plans were to write a story about my experiences as a class project. Kennedy was, for me, the ideal of what a president should be. Young and aggressive, yet thoughtful and seemingly genuine concern for his fellow man. As we stood watching the motorcade turn onto Elm Street, I tried to grasp every tiny detail of both President and Mrs. Kennedy. How happy they looked, I thought. Suddenly, shots rang out in rapid succession. Myself and dozens of others standing nearby turned in horror toward the back of the grassy knoll where it seemed the sounds had originated from. Puffs of white smoke still hung in the air in small patches, but no one was visible. Turning back to the street, now terribly frightened, I suddenly realized the president was no longer sitting up in the seat waving to the crowd. He was slumped over toward his wife, whose facial expression left no doubt as to what had occurred. The motorcade was beginning to speed and soon passed under the railroad trestle, heading for its eventual destination, Parkland Hospital. I was an impressionable teenage girl who had just watched the assassination of a president. But today, 20 years later, it is still as clear in my mind as if it happened this morning. At one moment, they were laughing and waving. The next moment, both men were slumped over and pandemonium reigned. As months passed following the shootings of first Kennedy, then Oswald, and then the deaths of Ruby and others, I tried to maintain the faith with my government. I have read the Warren Commission report in its entirety and dozens of other books as well. I'm sorry to say that the only thing I'm absolutely sure of today is that at least two of the shots fired that day in Dealey Plaza came from behind where I stood on the grassy knoll, not from the Texas School Book Depository. I can't accuse the government of hiding the truth or lying about the assassination because no matter what I may personally believe, I have no proof. But that day in Dallas and those that followed left their mark and I have never quite had the same faith and trust in those that lead us as I did before. 
That story was published in the San Diego Star for the 20th anniversary of the assassination. Cheryl McKinnon was a reporter there in 1983. You can look up the article online yourself. The article is entitled, My Last Look at Mr. President by Cheryl McKinnon. One thing that you might find interesting is several people in the motorcade corroborated what Sam Holland and the railroad workers saw during the assassination. Several persons in the motorcade smelled gunpowder as the car swept through the lower end of Dealey Plaza. Mrs. Cabell was riding with Congressman Murray Roberts. She said she acknowledged smelling gunpowder. Former Senator Ralph Yarborough also smelled gunpowder and saw smoke as the car carrying him and Lyndon Johnson drove through the plaza. Yarborough, a former Army infantry officer and an avid hunter, also failed to recognize the sound of the first shot. He told me when I spoke to him in November of 1994, quote, I thought, was that a bomb thrown? And then the other shots were fired, and the motorcade, which had slowed to a stop, took off. A second or two later, I smelled gunpowder, he said. I always thought that was strange, because, being familiar with firearms, I could never see how I could smell gunpowder from a rifle that high in the building, end quote. It does seem strange that people would smell powder from a shot fired more than 60 feet in the air behind them. However, it's not so strange if a shot were fired on top of the grassy knoll less than 12 feet in elevation with a breeze from the north to carry the smoke to street level. Once again, more evidence that points to a possible shooter on the grassy knoll. In the early to mid-90s, a rare photo was circulating throughout the research community. Supposedly, this photo was found in a garage in Dallas, but no one knows exactly where the photo came from. In the photo, you can see a puff of smoke coming from underneath the trees along the grassy knoll. In that same photo, you can see President Kennedy's limo as it just begins to go underneath the triple overpass on its way to Parkland Hospital. While we've listened to the witnesses in and around Ely Plaza and their opinions on where the shots came from, it's also important to know where the people who were closest to the president in the motorcade thought shots came from. Inside the presidential limo, Secret Service Agent William Greer was driving. Greer told the Warren Commission that there were large crowds immediately before Dealey Plaza, but the crowds thinned out as they turned onto Elm and into Dealey Plaza. He said that he heard three shots, and there were three or four seconds between the first and second shot, but the time between the last two shots, quote, just seemed to be simultaneously, one behind the other, end quote. Agent Greer had thought all the shots were fired behind him. Governor John Conley was right in front of President Kennedy in the limo and suffered multiple gunshot wounds. Conley told the Warren Commission that he only heard the first shot and the last shot that hit the president's head. He thought the shots came from behind him. Nellie Conley, the governor's wife, said the same thing. Roy Kellerman was a senior Secret Service agent that was responsible for presidential security in Dallas. He also believed that the shots came from his right rear, which would be consistent with the school book depository. One thing Agent Kellerman did say that was interesting was he thought the second and third shots appeared to happen almost at the same time. Quote, they were almost simultaneously, end quote. What about some of the Dallas police motorcycle officers that were immediately behind the presidential limo? What did they think? Officer B.J. Martin was the closest motorcycle officer on the back left side of the limo. He couldn't tell which direction the shots had come from, he said. He had blood and brain matter all over him, all over the left side of his helmet and his uniform. Officer Bobby Hargis was also on a motorcycle that was just to the left and behind B.J. Martin. Hargis wasn't sure how many shots were fired. He told the Warren Commission, quote, At the time, it sounded like the shots were right next to me. There wasn't any way I could tell where they were coming from, but at the time there was something in my head that said they probably could have been coming from the railroad overpass because I thought since I had gotten splattered with blood, but I didn't know, end quote. Officer Jim Cheney was the closest motorcycle to the president, near the right rear of the limo. Unbelievably, the Warren Commission never called Cheney to testify. 
He gave a statement on the day of the assassination to ABC News where he said the shots came from behind him, but he also said that he saw the president get struck in the face. Agent Clint Hill was on the left side running board of the follow-up car. He's the famous agent who immediately ran to the presidential limo and jumped on the back of it, basically saving Jackie Kennedy from falling off the back of the limo as she was reaching for pieces of her husband's head. Hill said in his written report, quote, As I lay over the top of the back seat, I noticed a portion of the president's head on the right rear was missing, and he was bleeding profusely. Part of his brain was gone, end quote. Secret Service agent George Hickey said that the first shot came from the right rear and seemed to be at the ground level. Then a few seconds passed, and Hickey reported, quote, I heard two reports, which I thought were shots that appeared to me completely different in sound than the first report, and were in such rapid succession that there seemed to be practically no time element between them, end quote. Two other men in the follow-up car were presidential aide David Powers and Kenny O'Donnell. In Powers' Warren Commission affidavit, he says, My first impression was that the shots came from the right and overhead, but I also had a fleeing impression that the shots came from the front in the area of the triple overpass. O'Donnell, who was seated next to Powers, told the Warren Commission that the first two shots, quote, came almost simultaneously, end quote, and that the third shot was after a slight hesitation. He said that the shots came from behind. As we've went along, I've hoped you've picked up a pattern here. The Warren Commission was really only interested in interviewing those that they knew would go along with the official story. But short of uncovering the proverbial smoking gun, no seamless explanation as to the who and why of Dallas is possible. Ideally, the time for uncovering answers to these questions was almost 60 years ago, had the Warren Commission enjoyed the full cooperation of government agencies and a clear mandate from the Johnson White House to pursue the truth, no matter where it led. Instead, settling the dust of Dallas as quickly as possible was the course the executive branch settled upon. For those involved in the investigation, this decision made at the highest level of the government was paramount to national policy. As a consequence, the Warren Commission went through the motions of an investigation that was little more than an improvised exercise in public relations. The government did not want to delve in the heart of the darkness of the Kennedy assassination because it feared what it might uncover. The brutal truth that Kennedy was a victim of deep divisions and that his assassination was carried out by powerful and irrational forces within his own government. I know I told you we were going to delve into the Green Nash Rambler this week, but we're almost out of time and that is something that I don't want us to just skim through. It is far too important. Plus, it really fits with what we're going to talk about next week, Lee Harvey Oswald's escape from the scene of the crime. That's all next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination. We'll see you then. Contrail, I was a soldier to you. I did what you asked me to, it was wrong in you. Contrail, I'm just a stranger.